I'm one of the ones that doesn't like the transition from summer to fall. I love summertime in Yakima. Who's with me out there? <laughs> Boo! What? Oh, come on. All right. Well, we are back this week in the Gospel of Matthew, and we will be looking at Matthew chapter 25. And uh, last time I was up here, I had the parable of the wedding feast, and I didn't really plan it this way, but I have another parable today, and it's the parable of the ten virgins, and it has to do with the wedding feast as well. So uh, very interesting uh, parallel to what I got to share last time. Uh, This is a prophetic parable, so it's about the future. Uh, It's about prophecy. It's future to the time where Jesus spoke it, and it's also future to us here today, 2,000 years later. So uh, prophecy, the Bible is filled with prophecy. Um, I've heard, maybe you've heard this, I've heard some people call Uh, called panentheists. They don't want to bother studying prophecy, so they call themselves panentheists. It'll all pan out in the end. That's their position. Um, But God's word is filled with prophecy, and so he must have it in his word for a reason. And so we want to look at it, we want to study it, we want to try to discern what the Lord uh, means with his prophetic word. So I've divided this message into three parts. Normally, um, I'll try to do that, and I'll have the text divided into three ways. Uh, This time, I'm just going to read the text all at once, and my three sections are, I think I may have learned this from BSF, someone can correct me if I'm wrong. So the three parts are, what does the passage say, what does the passage mean, and what does the passage mean to me? What does it say? What does it mean? What does it mean to me? And I should give a warning before we get into this that I am going to go on the biggest rabbit trail that I've ever gone on up here. I got permission from my wife to do this. Uh, So uh, even if everyone else hates it, uh, I've got her blessing. So that's half the battle right there, right? So uh, so I'm going to go far afield, and then I'm going to try to bring it back. I know I can go far afield. That part I'm not worried about. But bringing it back, I'm, I'm a little bit skeptical if I can do that or not. So uh, with that, let us read our passage this morning in Matthew chapter 25. And we are going to read verses 1 through 13 on the parable of the ten virgins. Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. But the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. But at midnight there was a cry, Here is the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all the virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, Since there will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. 
And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. So, I want to look at uh, what does it say. That's the first section, what does it say. And we get a view here into uh, Jewish first century marriage customs. Um, The parents of the woman and the parents of the man would get together and they would arrange the marriage. However, the, the man and the woman had veto power, so they were part of this as well. So uh, they couldn't be forced into an arranged marriage. But the parents tried to find a match, and then if the kids agreed, it would go forward. And there would be a betrothal period. This engagement would last about a year, and it was a test to see if the bride was truly a virgin or not. Now, uh, on the wedding day, the community would know what that day was. The bride would know what that day was, but they wouldn't know the time of the marriage. And so um, the groom would show up at the bride's house sometime during that day, and then there would be a negotiation that would take place between the groom and the bride's parents about the bride price. And then typically, the marriage would take place there at the bride's house in the evening. And after that, there would be a procession from the bride's house to the groom's house. There would be torches. We see the torches here in this parable. They would be covered in rags, uh, dipped in oil. And there would be a procession back to the groom's house And the groom would carry his bride uh, under the canopy and over the threshold into the groom's home. And then there would be the feast, the wedding feast, and there would be a celebration. And that celebration could last as many as seven days. Now, um, in this story, there are ten virgins. Um, We shouldn't take anything For the number 10, there's nothing really symbolic about that from what I could see. And there's nothing really symbolic about them being virgins either. This was just 10, uh, the number 10 was kind of a customary number of bridesmaids. Um, And these would have been friends of the bride and groom that were ages 12 to 16. And so they were waiting kind of uh, at the groom's house. Uh, or back away somehow until this wedding ceremony took place. And then there would be an announcement made, hey, the bride and groom are on the way. And this escort of bridesmaids would go out to meet the bride and the groom and uh, celebrate with them. And they'd light the way back to the groom's house with dancing and they would enter into the feast. This was a... For these ten virgins, this was a real honor to be invited to do this. This was um, a big responsibility, too. They had a duty. They had to light the way. Um, and it was practice for them, for their own wedding, to kind of uh, experience this scene. So 
Um, in this case, in our story, there's a delay. Um, and it's probably because the negotiations over the bride price back at the bride's house have taken a long time. Or maybe the groom showed up late in the morning or late in the afternoon uh, for the marriage. And so um, the herald, I guess it was typical, the herald would announce the groom's coming um, multiple times even, and they'd be kind of false alarms. Um, and so these virgins, as they're, uh, these ten virgins, as they're waiting, these ten bridesmaids, they take a nap. Uh, it's getting late in the evening, and so they take a nap. Now notice all ten of them take a nap. And so we know that there's five wise and five foolish. Well, they're not foolish for taking a nap. Uh, that wasn't what uh, made them uh, foolish. It was the fact that they didn't have oil. The five who didn't have oil, that's what made them foolish. Now, the question comes, well, why didn't the five wise ones share their oil with the five foolish ones? Well, they only had enough oil to light the procession um, back to the groom's house. So if they had shared and all 10 of them had their torches lit and they started uh, with the bride and the groom back to the groom's house, the oil could have run out and then they're stuck in the middle of nowhere um, with no way to light their way forward. So uh, notice also in this story that there is no telling who the wise and who the foolish are until the groom arrives. It's when the groom arrives that their foolishness is exposed. And so they have to, uh, the five foolish have to go out and look for oil. In the meantime, the groom comes. Uh, the five wise ones enter into uh, the feast. The door is shut and it's not opened again because these five foolish virgins have committed a grave insult against the groom. They had one job. You had one job, right? Be ready to light the way, and they, they failed it. Okay, so that's what it says. Now, the question becomes, second part here, what does it mean? What is Jesus trying to communicate here? And when we talk about what a scripture means, um, there's only one true interpretation. There's only one uh, true, one valid uh, view of what the passage, uh, what the passage means. And the interpretation of this passage depends on your end times position. It depends on what the correct end times position is. And so this right here is where I go off the rails, okay? So I'm going to go off the rails here for 10 minutes, so forgive me. And I'm going to talk about the Plymouth Brethren. And uh, if you have been new to this church in the past, and you come to someone who's been here for a while, and you say, okay, Titan Drive Bible Chapel, what denomination are you? What denomination are you? I've been asked that question, and I kind of hem and haw a little bit. Um, and you may have gotten two different answers. Uh, some, somebody may say, we're Plymouth Brethren. And some other person may say, we're non-denominational. We don't have a denomination. 
we we are not Baptists, we're not we're not Methodists, we're not Presbyterian, we're non-denominational. And so I would say that both of those answers are correct. We're Plymouth Brethren and we're non-denominational. Well, how can that make sense? Plymouth Brethren, that's a denomination, right? Well, um, back in the late 1820s and the early 1830s, there was a group of people that were um, in the Church of England, and they said, this is not what God wants of us. There was um, rituals and traditions and things like that that they saw um, in their church that they did not see in Scripture at all. And so they said, we want to get back to just worshiping the Lord like the New Testament says. And so they formed a group. The first one was in Dublin, Ireland, and the largest one was in Plymouth, England. And they didn't have a name for themselves. They said, we're, we're, we're rejecting denominations. Um, we don't want anything to do with that. We're, um, yeah, we, we, we're just believers. We're believers in Jesus Christ. Well, the biggest group in Plymouth, uh, England, the people would see the, these uh, people walking around town or whatever and say, oh, uh, so let me say it this way. The people that were going to that uh, church in Plymouth, they would call each other brother and sister. And so people outside the church gave them the name Plymouth Brethren, Brothers from Plymouth. And so that's where the name Plymouth Brethren comes from. And so I've thought about this over the years, and what are the distinctives of our church? What makes us... um, different than other churches or how do we explain ourselves to other people and uh so these are some of the things that i came up with as i was just kind of racking my brain so we're independent we uh are completely autonomous locally there is no plymouth brethren headquarters anywhere there's no um funds from the chapel that go to some other location um there's we don't get pastors sent to us or anything like that we're completely autonomous we make our own decisions that's uh, one of the distinctives of the Plymouth Brethren we're independent there is no clergy laity distinction we do not have ordained ministers ordained bishops that are up here and then all of us in the pews we're down here Uh, the Plymouth Brethren do not distinguish between uh ordained we don't have an ordained or a non-ordained class in any way the the priesthood of all believers we are all saints if you notice we don't have the word church in our name that's kind of interesting we're chapel or assembly my my brother is going to preach next week and he's from northgate gospel chapel we don't have the word church in our name our legal name i think i mentioned this uh, from way back 100 years ago, is Yakima Gospel Hall. It does not have the word church in it. The church is the group of people. It's not the building, it's the people. Uh, and so you'll see uh, Plymouth Brethren churches, they won't have the word church in their name, which is kind of interesting. 
um, we have a weekly communion service. We break bread together once a week. It's its very own service. It has a special emphasis in this church where uh, we uh, pass the bread and pass the juice every single week. Uh, and we proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. Um, we um, share about the Lord Jesus and what he's done for us. And we express thankfulness uh, for the uh, the price he paid on the cross for us. So we have a weekly Lord's Supper. Other Most other churches today, I would say, at least in my experience, they have it once a month and they tack it on uh, to the end of their service. Um, and... Uh, but that's one of the big four, right? The breaking of bread in Acts. Uh, one of the big four is the breaking of bread. So that's a real emphasis for uh, the Plymouth Brethren. And then we have a plurality of elders. We don't have a senior pastor here. Those of us that are elders would hesitate to take the name pastor in any way. Um, we do pastoral ministry, but we don't... Uh, Pastor has a as a connotation in the world today, and that's maybe not a connotation that we want uh, because we're not paid in any way. We're we're just um, serving the Lord as elders. So there's no seniority amongst the pastors. We're all or amongst the elders. We're all together trying to make a decision uh, in unity uh, amongst the four of us at this point. So. Uh, expository preaching. That's a distinctive of what we do here. Other churches have been adopting that as well, but that's something that we do here. We preach consecutively uh, through a book of the Bible. Uh, we can't skip over any difficult passages because we're going to come to them and we're going to have to address them. And um, so you'll see probably 48 times a year we're just marching through the Bible We'll have a Christmas service. Andy had a special message last week. We'll have a couple other weeks throughout the year where we're doing something different. But um, most of the time, we're just marching through God's word. And uh, I had a chance to look at the list of books that we've been through up here on Sunday morning over the last 20 years or so. And we have covered every single book in the New Testament except the epistles of John. Those are the only books that we have not covered from the New Testament up here in the last 20 years. And I would expect, um, in talking with the other elders, I would expect that sometime this next year we would go through the epistles of John and we'll have been through the entire New Testament in 21 years or so, plus many books in the Old Testament, of course. We don't neglect the Old Testament at all as, as well. We are very much missions-focused. We have three missionary families that we support. We, we, um, we are very much believers in the Great Commission, that the gospel would go out uh, to all the ends of the earth um, and that the Lord would use us in that. Um, so we have those three missionary families we support. We support um, Shiloh Bible Camp where the gospel is going out to our kids. And um, we very much um, want to emphasize that. And really, the, the Plymouth Brethren Church uh, collectively has had a real outsized impact on the world uh, through missions. Um, there, there are not many um, Plymouth Brethren churches uh, in this country, and those that are, they're pretty small. But so much of the donations and the money and the volunteers and the people go out to the mission field and serve very much missions-minded, missions-oriented, 
Uh, we want the gospel to go to the ends of the earth. And we want the Lord to use us in that. And finally, uh, our end times position is unique. Now, we don't hold to a end times position dogmatically here. We have the freedom amongst all of us to believe different things about the end times. But historically, the Brethren Church has believed, I'm going to use many big words in this sentence, has the premillennial, pre-tribulational, dispensational view of eschatology. I was seeing how many, uh, how many words I was... It's my favorite sentence of the sermon. Um, so, uh, but we have a specific end times position, and I'll get into that a little bit more. Now, one of the first founders of the uh, Plymouth Brethren movement was John Nelson Darby, and he articulated this end times view. And the view is that... Um, the rapture of the church is the next event on the prophetic calendar. The rapture will happen next. Then there will be a seven-year tribulation. And then there will be a literal 1,000-year reign of Christ on this earth. And then we uh, will enter into the eternal state. So and there's more details to all that. So, um, But he articulated this, and it... Um, this has really gone beyond the walls of the Plymouth Brethren as well. It's another area where the, the Brethren have had outsized influence um, on the discussion. Now, uh, I'm not really going to talk too much about this, but you can see this is a history of dispensationalism, and dispensationalism has the idea of there's different ages. God has a plan uh, for different ages, different time periods, different epochs, and we're currently in the, the church age or the age of grace. Um, but Darby is the one that started this idea. You can see Jim Darby uh, quoted from his Schofield Bible um, this morning. So you guys may know the name Schofield. And then Ryrie, Charles Ryrie. I have a Ryrie study Bible. Maybe some of you do too. And these guys at Dallas Theological Seminary where, where Josh uh, has his degree from. Uh, we're very much influenced uh, by this dispensational uh, movement. So um, I just, I don't know if we can read that or not, but here's just some of the, the different end times positions that we've seen over the years. So this first one is post-tribulational premillennialism. So this says that the rapture and the second coming are going to happen really at the same time at the end of the tribulation, and then the millennial kingdom for a thousand years will come in. This is the John Nelson Darby, Plymouth Brethren historical position here, the second one, where uh, Jesus Christ will come for his church at the rapture. The tribulation will be seven years. He will come again to this earth in judgment, and then uh, the millennial kingdom for 1,000 years. And so that's the pre-tribulational, pre-millennial position there. Then we have post-millennialism. This is, from what I understand, this kind of says a post-millennial thinks that the world is going to get better and better and better. And then uh, the millennial kingdom will, will ease into that. And then when things get as good as they're going to get, the Lord will return. 
amillennialism says the millennium is symbolic. I don't know if they would even say if we're in the millennium right now or not, but, but that the world is going to get worse and worse and worse, and then uh, the Lord Jesus will, will return at the second coming. And amillennialism says largely the books of prophecy are symbolic. They're very symbolic. Uh, it's hard to even discern what the symbols are. So uh, I'll leave that chart up this one up here and you can kind of look at that, but I want to get back to the parable here. So why did I go on that rant right there? Well, uh, our interpretation of the parable depends on our end times position. And so if we take the classic position that churches like ours have taken, then these, this parable, these virgins, uh, this time period that we're looking at represents the tribulation. And these are professing believers living in the tribulation. And um, the entering into the wedding feast represents the second coming, the return of the groom. And so, like I said, the virgins represent professing believers. Um, there is an emphasis um, in the tribulation about the Jews, that there's a remnant amongst the Jews that are going to come to faith during the tribulation. The groom obviously represents Jesus Christ. The bride, in this case, represents the church. So those of us who know Christ uh, right here, right now, um, we would be represented by the bride in this parable. And the marriage that takes place offstage from this parable um, in, in reality, takes place in heaven. And Revelation 19, 7 through 8 says about this marriage in heaven, says, let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory for the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. So the marriage takes place in heaven and the feast takes place on the earth. The oil in this parable represents the Holy Spirit. And as I mentioned earlier, the virgins, they are identical uh, to any outward appearance. They, have, um, they each have lamps. They each take naps. But they're different. Um, we have five wise and five foolish, and it's dependent on whether or not they had oil. So whether or not they had the Holy Spirit. And at the second coming, uh, at the end of the tribulation, those who are wise and those who are foolish will be exposed. It will all become uh, evident there. So true believers, whether Jews or Gentiles in the tribulation, they have the Holy Spirit. And this wedding feast uh, for the... Um, that the bride and the groom enter into with the wise virgins. That represents the millennial kingdom with Christ and with his church. And so I want to look at four phrases um, in this parable, still talking about what does this parable mean. So the first two are the bridegroom was delayed, and you know neither the day nor the hour. So there are signs that the groom is coming for those in the tribulation. There is a sense and a timing of when he will return. 
but they don't know the exact day or the hour of that return. And then we have this phrase, the door was shut. There's going to be judgment at the end of the tribulation. There'll be those who aren't ready for the groom's return. They won't be ready for Jesus' return. And so they won't get to enter into the celebration uh, of the wedding feast. They won't get to enter into the millennial kingdom with Jesus Christ. They won't have that perfect king uh, that we've all longed for. And there's that door is going to be shut permanently. There's going to be eternal separation from the Lord Jesus And then this phrase, watch therefore. This is really the theme of the parable. Um, These people are responsible themselves for what happens. They have their lamps, and the lamps represent a public affiliation with Christianity. But the oil represents the Holy Spirit. It represents the personal affiliation uh, with Jesus Christ. So we have this, these prepared and these, those that are unprepared. And we notice again that this oil is not transferable. This isn't transferable from one person to another. It's up to yourself on whether you're going to accept the Lord Jesus um, as your Savior or not. For these people in the tribulation, it's up to them um, whether they're going to decide for Christ or not. Well, this brings me to the third section here. What does this mean to me? Um, If this is for tribulation people, believers and unbelievers alike, what does this mean for me today? We live in the age of grace. We live in the church age. Well, we know that the Bible has one interpretation. I may or may not have said the correct one, depending on my view of prophecy, but it has many applications. And so we can take this parable and apply it to us. And really the implications for us um, as those living in the church age, the age of the bride maybe, and not the age of the wedding guests, the implications are practically identical for us. So we can take almost the same applications away today uh, as we would if we were a someone living through the tribulation. And the first one is make your choice. We need to look inward. We need to examine ourselves. We can't borrow our parents' faith. We can't borrow our friends' faith. We have to look at ourselves and we have to make the Lord Jesus our own. We have to decide for him on our own. Are you a wise person or are you a foolish person? The choice of whether to be wise or foolish is ours. Have we made that choice? Have we decided to be wise and repent of our sin, confess our sin to the Lord Jesus, and accept him into our lives? Be ready for the return of Jesus. This is, again, the main application. We need to be watching for his return. We need to be waiting for his return. If we believe that the next step on the prophetic calendar is the rapture of the church part of the implication of that is that that is imminent that event could happen at any moment at any time um end times prophecy is really a for most of church history was a forgotten doctrine um 
it was a, when you think of the Reformation, that was all about salvation, the doctrines of salvation and regaining that. Um, but prophecy had, had been forgotten largely uh, over the 2,000 years of church history. But uh, John Nelson Darby was part of that revival of that doctrine, and now we've had a lot of scholarship and a lot of examination and a lot of thinking about the end times. And in reality, um, we see kind of that, that idea here in this parable where these virgins slept. It was like they forgot that there was going to be a wedding going on. And, and there was this delay in this parable. And we see that delay today. We're still waiting for the Lord's return 2,000 years later, a return that could happen at any time. But we see the world declining around us. We see um, all of us, Christian or non-Christian, longing for that perfect leader to take the throne. And uh, that perfect leader will come. The Lord Jesus Christ will return. And so don't be discouraged by the delay that we see. This delay was expected in some ways. And there's a reason for the delay. God uh, wants those of us that are foolish to become wise. He wants those of us who are foolish to have the oil of the Holy Spirit. He wants those of us that are foolish to repent of our sins and turn to the Lord Jesus. He wants us to trust in him for our salvation and for our eternal life. God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And finally, don't be the fool that faces judgment. Judgment is coming, and we have one shot to get it right. There are no second chances. Um, we aren't going to we aren't going to have a warning for his return. Um, but we want to be part of that wedding. We don't want to be, as the book says, left behind, right? That's another, that whole left behind series, that's another um, um, fruit of John Nelson Darby's work, another fruit of this study of prophecy. Um, those left behind books take this same position that has historically been um, the chapel's position. But we don't want to be left behind. This is a grave insult to God, grave insult to the Father that we would reject uh, the groom. And so there is judgment awaiting us if we are foolish, and that judgment is irreversible. I was thinking about um, the devil, about Satan and his tactics, um, how he keeps us from the Lord Jesus. He says to some people, he says, there is no God. Right? There is no God. You don't need to worry about God. He's make-believe. Others, he says, well, maybe there's a God, but there's no judgment. There's no hell. You don't have to worry about that. Um, just relax. There is no judgment coming. God wouldn't do that. Or Satan could say, there's no hurry. Maybe there is judgment. Maybe there's God. Maybe there is judgment. But there's no hurry. You don't need to rush into this. You got time. You're young. He's been 2,000 years. He's going to be a while longer. But I would encourage all of us here today not to wait. We cannot wait. 
Decide now where your loyalty lies. We don't know when he's returning, so we need to be prepared today. We may look ready. We may be in this church and come to church every week, but all of the truth of our state is going to be exposed when the Lord returns, and the unprepared will be exposed. There are many out there that call themselves Christians. Uh, some are and some aren't. Some even here in this building uh, may be left on the outside of the wedding. They may be left behind. And instead of eternal life, there will be eternal separation. Instead of eternal joy, there will be eternal judgment. So examine yourself. Do you have the Holy Spirit or not? Are you just pretending to be a Christian? Do you want to go to be with God, to live with him forever? Do you want to have never-ending, eternal peace? Or do you want to spend eternity in anguish? Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you for our time this morning. Thank you for um, this parable of the virgins. Uh, Lord, this theme of being ready, of watching of waiting, of being prepared, Lord. I pray for each and every person in this room um, that we would all make that decision to be prepared, that we would all um, confess our sins to you, confess with our mouths that Jesus is Lord, that we would believe in our hearts that you, God, have raised him from the dead. So, Lord, I just ask uh, for each and every person here that all would come to know you, Lord, and for those of us that do know you, as the time draws short, Lord, I pray that we would be uh, that we would be bold and courageous with the gospel as we go forth into the world this week. In Jesus' name, Amen.